listening to the Hooked on Learning Podcast, where we discuss all things related to continuous improvement. And now to your host, Jesse Marka. Welcome back to another episode of Hooked on Learning. In today's episode, we're going to talk about today's training officer. Today's fire service truly must be prepared for anything. We need to ensure that our members have the basic skills needed to solve complex problems. This episode examines the components needed to effectively inform, engage, and prepare our personnel for the situations that may they may be called to respond to. Multitasking, creativity, and follow-through are just a few of the skills that are required by today's fire service training officer. This episode will provide all listeners with creative ways to build new skills as well as ways to maintain and reinforce skills that were previously developed. Today's training officer must excel at understanding today's responders as well as tomorrow's challenges. Because of that, it is so appropriate to start by going over some things in the fire service regarding generational differences. So when some people think of the fire service and they think of their prototypical firefighter, they think of this battle-hardened, salty mustache um, of a man that, uh, you know, wears an air pack 20% of the time they're in a fire and they came from some skilled trade of, of hammering nails and pouring cement and as a result, they can rewire a house um, at the drop of a hat, and they're just these um, super alpha, really hands-on people. And while that may be true in some instances, um, other people think of today's firefighters and see a tea-sipping millennial, the M-word, that uh, wants a trophy for the sake of participation. Now, the truth is, today's firefighters are, are highly complex people, and that's great because we need them to run our highly complex uh, systems, and they're highly capable people. So, in the fire service today, millennials actually are the largest population uh, in the workforce, and millennials became the largest pop- generation in the workforce back in 2015, based off of a study by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Now, when we think of millennials, people associate different buzzwords with them. Lazy, entitled, right? And and think back to your personal beliefs. Do you believe that's true? I, for one, do not, because I, for one, am a millennial. And it's funny, because I didn't really even realize I was a millennial until I was looking into this class and into um, the differences between Millennials versus Generation X, because those are the predominantly the two generations that are most prevalent in today's fire service. So there's a lot of different statistics about this, and uh, as, in terms of which generation is more open to change, which generation is more creative, which generation is more adaptable, which generation tends to be more of a team player, and what we find during this is that both generations have excellent attributes and both generations can be used to make one another better. Now, both generations do share in the fact that they are 
part of um, a really technologically advanced society in the United States. So both generations have been able to adapt to the challenges uh, brought on by increased technology. And for the most part, both, both generations are adept at uh, learning and using this new technology. Uh, one other interesting thing about millennials is, uh, according to these studies, they are uh, technically the most educated generation. And with that, maybe comes a couple of challenges. And one of those challenges is millennials want to know why. Why are we doing something? Now, to a Generation Xer, that may sound like you are questioning why they are doing it as a person or that you're questioning the merit or the reason behind why they're doing it. But very simply, most millennials and most new people at anything want to know why they're doing it because that has such an important impact on what they're doing and how they should be doing it. So, you know, the people aren't the only thing that's changed in the fire service. If you look around, our environment has changed substantially. We have larger homes, more open spaces, evolving fuel loads, increased void spaces, changing building materials, smaller lots, and new technologies. When you add these all up, what does it equal? It equals faster fire propagation, shorter time to flash over, rapidly changing fire dynamics, which result in shorter escape times and shorter time to collapse. We have increased exposure problems due to big homes and small lots. And there are new and unknown hazards that we may not even realize just yet. However, all of these things that are changing, the people and the environment, some things remain the same. Firefighters are still being killed in the line of duty in the same ways. Uh, there's sudden cardiac failure, right? That's 50% of line of duty deaths. And then we have the traditional uh, top five in terms of operations, inadequate risk versus gain assessment, lack of incident management system, lack of adequate SOPs or SOGs, lack of effective incident communications, and lack of effective training. And what we're really learning about humans in general, regardless of your generation, is that we are all creatures of habit. And habit manifests itself in several different ways in the fire service. One of those ways is in training. So organizationally, we develop habits. And there's a book that talks about the power of habit. And it, it has a diagram that is a very powerful diagram, and that is the habit loop. So the habit loop is a circle, and that circle starts with a cue, so something that you see, and then a routine, so something that you perform, and then the last part of the habit loop is the reward. So think of reward um, and interchange that, use that interchangeably with results or outcome. So organiza organizationally relating to training, our cue may be a training standard, my OSHA, NFPA, ACLS, ISO, um, anything to do with our EMS CEs. That would be the cue. The routine is to do some type of typically quantity-based training for the sake of becoming um, compliant with one of these training standards. And then the reward result or outcome is we are indeed compliant. We can check that box and we can move on. The problem with this is compliance doesn't always equal competence. So we have to make sure we are balancing these trainings from a quantity and quality standpoint. The other way that 
we uh, identify with habits as a human being is we have a series of cue, cues, routines, and rewards that guide our actions day in and day out. Wake up, take a shower, brush your teeth, all of those sorts of things. Those are our cues, our routines, and our rewards. So when something bad happens, you have to have those habits develop to the point where essentially they take place on autopilot. Because I like to ask people a question, when all else fails, what do you fall back on? And a lot of times people will say we fall back on our training. That's true to some extent. But what is far more true is you don't fall back on your training, you fall back on your habits, your habits as a human. So if if your habits as a human were to have effective training, then congratulations to you because you're doing just fine. So recently I was nerding out and had the opportunity to read a study by the name of Learning and Memory Under Stress implications from the classroom. And this was done by uh, two researchers, Vogel and Schwab, in 2016. And they used a model to illustrate habitual um, patterns versus cognitive patterns and habitual performance versus cognitive performance. And the scientific way of saying this um, would be that stress shifts the balance between multiple systems underlying learning and memory. At rest, this balance is tilted towards the cognitive memory system depending on the hippocampus, allowing for the formation and recall of flexible memories. Stress, however, is thought to alter the system in terms of learning and memory under stress, which in this model is indicated by a red lightning bolt, the balance tips towards more rigid habit memories, which everybody knows are encoded by the dorsal striatum. We were just talking about that over coffee this morning. The dorsal striatum is is an amazing thing. Therefore, stress affects not only how much is learned, so the quantity of your memory, but also what is encoded in how memories are built, which is memory quality. So the idea of inserting stress into training should help develop more skills at a higher level. And that's really what the rest of this presentation is going to talk about, building those uh, those habits, if you will. So in your brain, the amygdala, which turns on the fight or flight and stores memories of the event, can then transfer very strong signals to the hippocampus, which regulates memory and emotions. And then that will shorten the path to your brain's prefrontal cortex, which is where thinking and logic and what to do comes in. So a little bit scientific here. Um, but you're a smart group, and I'm sure we can handle that. So everybody knows the sympathetic nervous system. That's really what we're trying to do is we're trying to build skills for uh, use during times of high stress. And in high stress, the the sympathetic uh, nervous system gets activated, and a couple of words become really important. I can. 
If you can, then you can fight or you can flight. When you get into I can't, your body goes into a freeze mode. So firefighter survival really gets to the point of fight, flight, or freeze. And those sti- the, the stimulus is so important to this because as humans, we are pre- predisposed to what researchers call primal fears. So firefighter primal fears would include burns, heights, suffocation, uh, disorientation, entanglement, or uh, something involving confined space. And that makes us human. So it's up to us to develop our brains and train our brains to the point where we are able to develop rigid and effective habits to allow our brains and our bodies to match the situation that we are confronted with. Because in all reality, the training ground can be much different than the battleground. And if the only training ground we ever use is a training room, how will that equate to a two-story house that is 6,000 square feet with a 3,000 square foot walkout basement at 3 a.m.? Or if the only training we ever do is in a training room, how on earth will that prepare us to um, fight a fire or respond to some sort of emergency in a Boeing 747 or 737 or 757 or an Airbus 319, 320, or 321, which I can now properly identify thanks to my sister Lacey and her uh, size-up techniques, mostly having to do with Spirit Airlines. So thank you for that tidbit of knowledge. Now, when we talk about the habit loop, we're talking about cue, routine, and reward. The fire service has its own version of a habit loop, and that can be found in the Blue Card Program. The Blue Card Program talks about standard conditions, standard actions, and standard outcomes. Well, geez, that sounds a lot like cue, routine, and reward. So if we're um, training ourselves to the point where we can rep- recognize and interpret standard conditions from the aspect of an offensive fire and a defensive fire, then we should be able to select those corresponding actions and we should realize those standard outcomes, that reward or that result. But when we deviate, when we fail to recognize one of these three elements, the conditions, actions, um, I'm sorry, when we fail to recognize one of the first two, the conditions or the actions, we will not get what we want on the third leg of that, which is the standard outcome. Uh, And that's where people start falling through roofs and floors or um, the ceiling falls on your head or something bad happens. So with that, we got to make sure we're seeing things in the same way. We're all reading from the same sheet of music, and that means we have to identify some critical factors. Now, we have some of those organizational critical factors, budget, delivery model, community, run volume, and then we have operational critical factors, and there's um, eight of them. Actions, arrangement, building type, fire, life safety, occupancy type, resources, and special circumstances. And if we really, 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 really want to maximize our training, I talked about adding stress, then we need to make our training dynamic. So dynamic training equals dynamic results. And dynamic training builds excitement. It appeals to the senses. It engages our participants. It promotes and encourages critical thinking because it challenges learners constructively and and most importantly, it is building skills for times of stress. 
And in order to do this, we need to do it incrementally and cumulatively. And along the way, we have to have a healthy respect for the phases of competence. So there are four phases of competence. Number one, unconscious incompetence. You don't know what you don't know. Number two, conscious incompetence. Now at least we know what we don't know. As we continue through learning, we get to the third phase, which is conscious competence. Now we know what we know. In ideal conditions and training conditions, we can function um, at a very high level because we know this. In stage four, the end of the road where we're trying to go and trying to stay is unconscious competence. We don't even realize what we know. So you don't know what you know. You are to the point where you have truly developed mastery and you are able to functionalize that mastery in use uh, for use during high stress situations. Now, to get us to that point, I like to use what is called the five-step learning process. And this can be used to develop really any sort of skill, but especially a skill that needs to be employed during a high-stress, high-risk situation. So the first step of the five-step learning process is to learn, and that is basic knowledge and skills acquisition. The second step is to practice, so we familiarize our body to responses. Number three is the mastery uh, phase, and we develop unconscious competence. Again, that's that key phrase we're looking for. And number four is functionalize. Now we place what we know into operational context. And then number five, this is an important one, we maintain that knowledge, skill, or ability through regular, appropriate, and realistic training and continuing education. So to go back through these and provide a little more insight, number one, the first uh, stage was learn. First step in the five-step learning process was learning. And the best way to learn is to think of an onion. So at the very core of that onion, we would put the knowledge, skill, or ability that we're trying to get to. Think of our cross-lay system. Now we would kind of work backwards, um, and we would answer three really important questions. Why, when, and how. And I promise you, if you can answer those three questions with respect to anything you are ever trying to do, or anything you're trying to instruct or teach to somebody, then you are already doing better than a vast majority of trainers and educators. So why do we need to pull a crosslay? When should we pull a crosslay? And how are we pulling that crosslay? And how are we putting that crosslay back up on the truck so it's ready for next time? Another way that we really learn from things is to go back to some of the stuff we talked about in the art of risk management and um, with respect to Rickover's rules and that is learning from the past. So there's a, a formalized way of learning from the past and the two most common ways you hear of that are through either an after action review or a post incident analysis. So an after action review is developed by the military to make sure that they weren't suffering unnecessary loss. And after action reviews basically center on four questions, and those questions basically are what was planned, what happened, uh, what went well, and what would you improve in the future, or what would you do differently. And those can be pretty informal. 
A post-incident analysis is typically much more formal and may go in depth and include benchmarks and, uh, and is definitely a little bit more uh, detailed in its approach. So good ways to learn from past events, both events that can could have gone a little better and events that went exceptionally well. Now, number two is practice. We get to the point where we're practicing these skills. And um, one of the ways that we can practice these and that we have practiced these is through monthly drills. So we had monthly drills on the EMS side. We had monthly drills involving uh, rescue skills. And we had monthly drills involving fire skills. Now, these were uh, ranging in their complexity, and they were typically shorter drills. And a lot of them focused on task-level things. But as time went on, we developed new systems, new practices, and we moved on to things like initial radar reports and size-ups and follow-up reports and so on. Now, one of the things that we really focused on and one of the things that is really important, even though we don't talk about it a lot, is recognize prime decision-making. We may not even realize this is what we're doing, but if you think of your size-ups, this is exactly what we intended to do. We want to prime the pump, so to speak. We want to give you slides for you to draw on and to use during high-stress, high-risk moments involving non-discretionary time. Now, there's three steps to recognize prime decision-making. Number one, experience the situation. Look, listen, and feel. Number two, analyze the situation. Have we been here before? Are there recognizable patterns? And number three, implement the decision in a timely manner that involves definitive actions. So that is the point of recognized prime decision-making. One of the ways we do that is through the training of playing fast. Playing fast allows us to select or to determine whether or not there are savable lives and or property. Therefore, we offensive or defensive. And then where's our water going? So that's an important drill that can be done in a matter of minutes, yet it allows us to, to develop these skills. Number three, master. So how do we master something? The way we master things is through a concept known as stress inoculation. And this is what the military does. So the first phase is the conceptualization phase. And that emphasizes the importance of stress training. And we increase the awareness of likely stressors. We also examine the physiological and physical responses. And ultimately, we raise awareness of the stress environment. The second phase is skills acquisition. So we identify cognitive control strategies, we identify physiological control strategies, we really emphasize overlearning, we employ mental practice, and we develop decision-making and prioritization skills along with team skills. And then the third phase of stress inoculation is the application phase. In the application phase, we identify the full range of stressors, we integrate those stressors in the training session, we then gradually increase the intensity of those stressors following successful reps, and the intensity is graduated and continues to a ceiling. So we don't want to push things too far. And when we talk about identifying cognitive control strategies and physiological control strategies, we're really talking about something called the big four. And this is something that came out of uh, some research by the Navy SEALs in terms of training their brains and being comfortable with the uncomfortable, because that, my friends, is the ultimate transferable skill. As humans, we are subjected to uncomfortable situations in our personal and our professional lives, 
And the big four, I move these around a little bit. Number one is arousal control. So think of it controlling your breathing, your heart rate, um, your blood pressure. Number two is visualization. Number three is self-talk. And number four is goal setting. So how do we do arousal control? Well, you ever hear somebody say, take a deep breath? That's the best way to start. Take a deep breath. The way that they teach this typically is through box breathing or square breathing. And you breathe in for four seconds. You hold your breath for four seconds. You breathe out for four seconds. And then you hold your breath again for four seconds. And you repeat that cycle. And what it does is it allows your brain to basically slow down and start um, developing that comfort level with something that is uncomfortable. So you got to control your breathing, right? I know you guys have heard that before. So you breathe in for four seconds, you hold for four seconds, you breathe out for four seconds, and you hold it for four seconds. That allows you to control your breathing and in turn allows you to control your heart rate and your blood pressure and some of those other physiological responses to stressors. Now, um, another way that we can we can do this is through functional fitness. So functional fitness was a concept that said, well, let's mimic the effects of stress as it um, relates to those physiological stressors. And let's put it in a very controlled setting that will take 30 minutes. And it was basically um, a, an exercise circuit that stressed different parts of your body to produce those physiological responses that taxed your brain and your body for that particular skill, such as doing a slam ball and then doing pediatric intubation, or cadence burpees and then doing an initial rate of report, or sprints on the treadmill and doing an initial rate of report. And uh, there were a lot of good examples of this during that class, and it, you know, um, it reinforced the need when you're out of breath, even though you may not have ran anywhere, you just simply stepped off the truck or you're still sitting in the truck, but you get that adrenaline dump the importance of taking a deep breath. Number four, the fourth step in the five-step learning process is to place this in an operational context. So think of vehicle extrication and uh, and being able to cut a car up as part of a scenario, not just part of a, okay, guys, this is how we do a third door, a fifth door, a roof flap, a roof removal, dash roll, dash lift. This is now doing it in a scenario where we have a little bit more of an elevated uh, set of consequences. In fact, tomorrow we will be testing off probationary firefighter Wiggins on his probationary exam. It's a series of basic skills. For those who have done it before, you can attest to that. But we can also tell you that we make it stressful because we want to place it in an operational context and see if you truly have developed mastery with those skills. Now, live fire training is another way we can place this in an operational context. That's why we've done several things like vent enter isolation, vent enter isolate search, VEIS. That's why we do hoseline entry, hoseline egress, uh, window egress, all those things, forcible egress under live fire conditions to build slides for you, to give you stressors and allow your body to identify and understand uh, and minimize those stressors, even in situations where you are completely uncomfortable. And then the last step of the five-step learning process is to maintain those skills that we just built. So one of the ways that we are doing this is through virtual reality. So we have our own 360 camera, and we'll be using that camera to film a variety of training evolutions and size-ups 
and uh, and, and much to the fire marshal's uh, pleasure. Even riser rooms, sprinkler rooms, FDCs, uh, hazardous materials locations at different um, occupancies potentially. So we develop a system to maintain those skills. Another way we're going to maintain those skills is through something called a podcast. So those podcasts, which all are welcomed and encouraged, including our friends from Metro Airport, to participate with and record, um, we can set this up for you very easily. So please, if you're interested in that, let me know. The newsletter is another way that we tried to spread the word and get people engaged and allow for people to share their uh, expertise and their opinions and their knowledge of whatever it may have been that they wanted to communicate with the group. And another way that we maintained the skills was by actually uh, testing the system, and that came with the down firefighter CPR when we were doing those evolutions off of Franklin uh, Road in the township and uh, developing those best practices for down firefighter CPR, which, by the way, we have to make sure that we are maintaining those skills. Now, um, the other way that we want to make sure we are being creative is when we are in that classroom, we don't always have to use the same old PowerPoint or the same old textbook. We can be creative and use different things like emails or Prezi or something that maybe um, one of you would recommend. And at the end of the day, the product is going to be so much better because now we understand who we are as firefighters. We know that we want to know why. And we understand what we are as a fire service, right? We're busier than ever. A lot of us don't have that many more resources than uh, we did a few years ago. And we have this challenge of fitting in a quantitative training model into an organization that requires us to be far more qualitative than quantitative if we want to actually have that mastery. So my opinion is quality far outweighs quantity. Sadly, the fire service is behind in this because we have adopted a very stringent quantitative training model, including all of the curriculum through the state of Michigan, because there is no way to say reasonably you have reached the same outcome as somebody else, even though you spent half of the time doing it. So that, I believe, is where we need to go as a fire service, but that's also where we need to go as humans, quality over quantity. And if we can answer why and when and how, then we can train our brains and our bodies to take care of any knowledge, skill, or ability that we are... Um, needing to use during any incident, both personally and professionally. So with that, thanks once again for your time. We condensed this one down, and I have a much more in-depth presentation for you on this. If you would like more information, there's awesome, there are also some excellent videos um, that were part of a special on the History Channel about the mental toughness in terms of training for the Navy SEALs candidates. I believe you can also talk to Greg Ryan about that, and, and he can share some of his personal experience with that. So until the next time, we'll see you later. Thank you for listening to the Hooked on Learning Podcast. Until next time, be smart.